This episode is sponsored by Sneaker Creatures. Sneaker Creatures is your one-stop shop for all of your sneaker needs, and man, do they have a big selection of shoes. If you're looking for Nikes or Jordans, those are super hot right now, and they have them at such incredible prices. If you're looking to gift Nikes or Jordans this year, then really, really check out SneakerCreatures.com. You could use my promo code NickLugo, I repeat, N-I-C-K-L-U-G-O at checkout and get a 10% discount on your purchase. Any shoe in the store, you will get a discount. Check it out, SneakerCreatures.com. I repeat, SneakerCreatures.com. Check out the link in the description below. It will be there. And now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to The Nick Lugo Show. Today you will experience Jeremy Sherman, a man who doesn't claim to have the answers, but yet asks some of the best questions. He has a PhD in philosophy, and he really just, he knows, and well, doesn't know at the same time. You know, he consulted for critical thinking for the US military. He's very, very into just answering these fundamental questions about how we act, how we behave, and well, whether or not there's a right answer on how to behave. Um, he's collaborated closely with Harvard slash Berkeley neuroscientist and biological anthropologist Te- uh, Terence Deacon. Um, he was a hippie for five years working in a commune, studying Buddhist philosophy as well as many others. And well, he has just done the incredible crazy things that, well, has given him a full life and a full perspective. At the age of 65 years, he is here to share his wisdom with everybody, and he's really here to answer the question of how should we behave, how are we, and who are we, if we even are. So here we go, Jeremy Sherman. Uh, I was actually reminded of one today. You know uh, Smart Food Popcorn? Yes. Yeah. So I worked with the guy who created that. But I worked on I worked with him on a project that sucked that he had come up with before Smart Foods. Okay. And, and so and I bailed on the on the the first project. And he comes to me later with the Smart Food project and says, You want in on that? And I said, No, not with you. No. <laughs> not it was, you know, I would have made millions on that. So, wow. so there, that's an overstep in the right direction. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, you know, I always worry about like Okay, so then here's the final question, and this is a little Socratic, Socrates, like a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Do we know, right? Like, do we ever know what is the right guess? Do we ever know what's going to give us the success most of the time? And then at the end of the day, it's like, is this conclusion to just say, okay, we just don't know. We have no idea. No, so, so um, we know better guesses. We know better guesses in controlled games. Life is not a game. It's way more of a cluster flux, uh, flux than that. But, um, but yes, there are moves you can make. Um, you know, to take a simple example, there are in a game like tic-tac-toe, there is a definitive right move that will pay off most of the time. In poker as well, there would be that. But that's not, that's not real life. These are collapsed versions of it. And you, so, yes, you won't be right every time, but you'll be more right um, or less wrong. Um, in reality, no, I don't think there there are. And this is these are new ideas for me, but I've begun to write them up. There are Psychology Today articles about them. Check this out. Um, there's also recursion in reality. Even in physics, there is recursion, which means basically uh, looping something back on itself. Um, uh, interest, you know, Einstein was once asked, at least this is the, uh, the apocryphal story, Einstein was once asked what he thought was the most amazing phenomena in the universe, and he said compound interest. 
compound interest. Compound interest is you take something comes out of it and you feed it back into it and you end up with interesting phenomena. You can get runaway effects like compound interest yep. where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and all that sort of stuff. But you also get interesting reversals with, with, with what's called recursion. So now I'm interested in moral philosophy. I'm not interested in, uh, yeah. So I, I, apparently I, I end up writing there a lot. And one of the things I've noticed is that there are, um, a, there are a lot of popular moral principles that are actually recursive and therefore self-negating. So this is different from compound interest. But try this one out. You shouldn't be judgmental is a judgment. Do not be negative is negative. Yeah. Is it saying negative negativity is a no-no? Yeah. Uh, commit yourself to flexibility. Be intolerant of intolerance. So what I've noticed is when you get those, those all point people people make i think one of three moves in response to that the um i'll i'll, I'll give you another example which is uh love is the answer which also means hate hate that is you should hate hate hmm. um, reject it now so 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 suppose i'm someone who believes that love is the answer and someone points out that it's self-contradictory um uh that if you're going to prefer if you're going to really prefer love, you're really going to not prefer its alternatives. Yeah, go ahead. So, so one move is to say, well, no, I'm a lover of love. And uh, if someone says to me, uh, you did something hateful just now, I'll just bullshit my way out of it. I'll say, well, no, that wasn't hate. And I'll just make up some euphemism for that. Mm -hmm. So I call that fundamentalist equivocation. There's, I'm going to pretend I can live by an always do X rule, always love. And then I just kind of pretend I don't, I pretend I live by it when in fact I don't. No one can. In fact, if you look at love, it's a preference, which is always relative to other things. So if I love someone more, I love others less by definition. It's always relative. Okay. So now that's one move. So someone says, uh, Love is the answer. And then someone else says, yeah, but what about that thing you just did where you just said, you know, you know, you love justice and you hate injustice. What isn't that hate? And they say, no, no, that's not hate. That's and then they come up with something so that they can feel as though they're not so that they feel like they live. Yeah, like, like they, they live the pure life. The second move is the one I'll call cynical hypocrisy. So someone says, hey, you just did something that was unloving. And I say. Oh, so you you don't like? Uh, sorry, let us. Yeah, I basically call bullshit on the self contradiction. If someone said to me, "You shouldn't be judgmental," and I said, "Ha ha, you just you just use the judgment on that," which means you're a hypocrite, which means it's all bullshit, and I don't have to care about any of it. That's cynical hypocrisy. That's a standard move. It's a popular move these days in the United States. If you watch what the right wing does with humor, it's all about the hypocrisy of their opponents, and therefore it gives them license to be as hypocritical as they want, because it's all just a game and it's all, you know, whoever's the better hypocrite. Yeah. What's that? Give me an example. Oh, if you look at any cart, if you look at any right-wing political cartoon these days, it is, they all call the resistance, the majority of Americans on their hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I think they do this is what I call exempt by contempt. That is, if they show disdain for other people's hypocrisy, it proves that they don't have any hypocrisy either. They're 
they're above it. And they play it actually two different ways. They play it as though they are morally higher than those people who engage in hypocrisy. And they also play it as if it's all just a game. Okay. So if you if you come so you've got the purist prude in Mike Pence, and then you've got the cynical brat in Donald Trump. And the between the two, you you basically are getting there's no deed too dirty for saints like us. You get to play punk and prude. You get to you get to shame people for not living up to morals and also laugh at them for caring about morals. So that's, that's, and I'm not, I mean, I, I'm only singling them out because they're popular these days doing that. But if I, if I was writing in the 1940s, it'd be the left who's doing it. It's not about what they claim to believe. I don't actually think that beliefs are part of it, but one way or another, it's a cynical hypocritical response to contradictions. If someone says you shouldn't be judgmental, they say, ha ha, you're just, you just judge me. I don't have to listen to you. Okay. Mm -hmm. The third one is the one I was talking about first, which is this fallibilist irony. When you see a, a self-contradictory moral principle, like you shouldn't be judgmental, you get interested because what you're actually noticing is not a moral principle. It's a dilemma. You'll be figuring out all life long when to be judgmental, when to be not judgmental, when to be negative, when not to be negative, what to love, what to hate. Love becomes a question, what to love, what to hate. Um, so it's, it's, I see those as the three main moves we make dealing with life's reversals, these contradictions and some, yeah. So that's, that's all. Well, it makes sense. Like one of the things that I always struggle with was, and you know, I'm, I'm 20, right? So you're as, 20 and you're, and what's your, what's your, what are you studying these days? Uh, both marketing and psychology. Fabulous. Excellent. <laughs> I've taught both. They're fabulous. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Great <laughs> choice. Yeah, well, you know, they're very related and they're excessively yeah, yeah. human, which I love. Yes, uh, yes, that's right. But that's the thing, you know, I, I always noticed that whenever I always got into an argument with somebody, and this is this is exactly what we do every single day, is an argument is picking a side and running with it, right? And I pick a side and I run with it, and then I realize that I kind of agree with the person on the other side a little bit, but the problem is that since I picked a side, then I can't go to the other side. So I have to choose one side when in reality, there's no way that I, that this one side is 100% right. No, I, I actually make a point it, with everything I write, I could make a convincing counter argument to it. Yep. That's part of my fundamental approach. Um, uh, and I actually picked that up. Uh, so in the Renaissance, the beginning of what they called civic humanism was the idea that the citizens needed to be smarter. And for that, they needed to learn rhetoric, logic, and grammar. Okay. Uh, they called it the trivium. And what's interesting to me about that is rhetoric and logic are kind of opposites. Rhetoric is how to spin an argument and logic is, or critical thinking is how to unspin it. Mm -hmm. So grammar actually has an important role to play here, but I've actually set it aside. I actually think what everybody needs to learn how to do is how to spin, how to unspin, and how to do both even-handedly. Yeah. It is how to be able to make a better argument, the, the best possible argument for your opponents, and how to be able to shoot holes in your own argument. 
That doesn't mean that doesn't mean I agree with my opponent. It doesn't mean I soften. I mean, I'm still placing a bet about what I sh- what what's more important. But I often respond to our, uh, people who counter me by saying I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you're absolutely half right. Uh, that is, I'm mostly interested in the dilemmas and exposing them, the ways in which they're right in certain circumstances, and uh, whatever I'm standing for is right in other circumstances. Well, that's one of the best quotes that I've ever heard in my life is that a a person who's wise is, or I guess just a wise person is somebody who's able to hold two contradictory ideas in their head. The F. Scott Fitzgerald line. Yes. And still be able to act. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the heart of that's, that was foundational for me in this work. Um, Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's the thing. Like, there's so much complexity in the world, right? And that's that's one of the things yeah. that I realize is that I find myself all the time, and this is just the funniest thing. Like, I remember four days ago, I forget the principle, but I I really really supported one principle, and then the next day, I like four days later, I learned something completely different, and I just completely rejected that same exact principle, you know. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, no, maybe I don't reject the principle completely. Maybe I don't reject the whole idea, but there are just some applications in which one would work and some applications in which others would work. That's the central, that's the central point of it, which is to recognize that different situations call for different things. People will mistake that for, um, for relativism, but the problem with relativism, moral relativism or its equivalent is it, it's not recognizing that actually it's not just your word against mine. We don't have to just adapt to each other. We have to adapt to reality. That's been the game for 3.8 billion years. Mm-hmm. Um, adapt or die. So that means I really do increasingly think in terms of driving on a winding road that's being built as we travel it and is changing all the time. You got to watch opposite sides of the road. You can't simply say, I want to avoid that side. You'll run off on the other side. Yep. And so the, the, so to come back to those three options and lay them out, imagine a backstreet backseat driver, mm-hmm. the fundamentalist equivocator is basically saying, always turn your wheel all the way to this one side. Um, that's how you drive the winding road. And yeah. if you crash, he'll say, yeah, you, you did it wrong because you know, he'll make up some equivocating rule so that his rule still applies um, uh, even though it didn't. Yeah. The other backseat driver, the cynical, hypocritical driver will say, it's all bullshit. Close your eyes. It doesn't matter because the roads wind and you could, you could be wrong no matter what you did. And the ironist backseat driver, I'm just making this up now. It's gonna be it's good, I'll use it. Um, the ironist backseat driver is saying, mind the road, watch both sides of it. You can fall off on either side, depending on where you in the road. Sometimes you have to lean way over to one side, sometimes to the other side. Um, yes, so like that. Well, that's the thing, you know, you talk about fundamentalists, and the way I think about that is just a conversion into everyday people is just ideology, right? You pick an ideology. I don't care if it's the left, the yeah. right, the Christian, the Buddhist, the whatever, yeah. right? And you choose an ideology, you're picking one side of the road and then you're just running with it. You're you're well, that's I guess ideology by definition. So let's say you choose the Christian doctrine, right? The Christian doctrine. Yeah. You're literally taking the world as complex and crazy as it is and simplifying it into one narrative, one set of rules, one set of structures. And it's, and yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you can I think go. it's actually one step worse than that. Oh. Um, uh, and this would be true of any sacred text. They are held as if they are one set of rules 
Um, in fact, if you look at the sacred texts, I mean, I've read the Bible three times, including um, I went to yeshiva when I was young, so I had uh, it in ancient Hebrew. Um, it's a catalog of rationalizations. If you look at how a sacred text has been used throughout history to justify whatever, you can always find stuff in it that will do that. And this is because you can either have one rule or an infinite number. If you have 10 rules like the Ten Commandments, then you need rules for the conflicts between them. Yep. So actually what I think is going on with these people is they're not actually ideologues. That is, the ideas don't really matter to them that much. It's the, it's the relief from doubt. It's the freedom from uncertainty of acting as though you are following one set of rules. It gives you all sorts of cred to claim that you are following a straight and narrow. But this is the equivocating part. You're not, a human cannot, you cannot survive without changing direct, uh, changing your response in different circumstances in a way back to this thing about multiple personalities. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you couldn't survive that way, but you can certainly give yourself the sense that you have a higher moral authority because you have followed what is presented, what is marketed as the one formula for how to live when in fact it's a catalog. So explain that. So you're saying that, okay, a big problem in the 1700s was that people used Christianity to explain imperialism, you know, like taking over Native American. Right, land. or slavery or any number of things. Yeah, yes, that's right. But but the point is not that it justified immoral things. The point I'm trying to make is broader and more neutral and more universal of sacred texts is that they're not say they're they they are catalogs of potential rationalizations. When you think about stories and how open they are to interpretation and yep. you compile a mess of stories, um, you can certainly throughout all the story, this is an example, Karen Armstrong, a, a famous theologian, academician, says of all religions that the only thing that is consistent about them across the centuries is their claim of being consistent. Hmm. Nothing else about them has to stay the same. They have to tailor. They have to adapt. They're on the winding road of civilization. Um, uh, and then you get all of this splintering where different people hold, different sects hold different aspects of it to be the priority. Yeah. So, and this is not, I'm not picking at Christianity. It'd be true of any sacred text. And what I'm basically getting at is what would a human being really want? They would want a wild card trump card formula. They would want the freedom to do whatever they want to do. Okay. And the ab ability to claim that whatever they're doing is the right thing to do. Mm. That's what we would want. Mm. Okay. So you're saying that, well, this is one of the things that I've, I've learned over the years is that we make emotional decisions, right? We make them right on it's Yeah. It's way more that than anything like logic. Logic is an afterthought. Most, we are much more a rationalizing creature than we are a rational creature. Yeah. I actually had a guy named Andrew Weaver on, he was an IU Indiana yeah. university professor. And he just essentially, he did studies on all of these things. And he just came to the amazing conclusion that our morals are derived from our emotions and every decision that we make is emotional. And then we just say, okay, you know what, let's map it onto some moral principle that we had before and hope and just rationalize it. So you're saying that because we can have limitless interpretation of things, 
and sacred text and all of these things. So all we do is we make an emotional decision and then change the text or change the interpretation of the text to map what we're doing. Yeah. uh, Two nights ago, I came up with the idea for a board game, uh, for a card game. Check this out. Okay. You have a bunch of cards that are just moral principles and you even have them paired up. So they're opposite moral principles. Then you get another set of cards that, um, that are things you have to defend. So defend genocide, the (laughs) defend pedophilia, whatever. And the trick is to use as many of the cards as you can to draw a linear argument from where we are to where you've got to go. This is still a half-baked idea, but I I think it could work. And you get extra points by using contradictory morals. Mm. Really what you're doing is you're making a, it'll sound like a logical argument where each time you're citing a moral, but each moral you, you just pull out your butt, whichever moral you need in the moment, and then ignore it the rest of the game or uh, ignore it the rest of the, uh, of the sequence. So, and, and this hit me about 20 year olds just the other day. I mean, it's, it's been a good week. Um, <laughs> not just 20 year olds, all of us. I wrote this poem really short um, and really easy called Poem for All Ages. Okay. When in your youth you discover a truth that pierces you to the core, do you call it the truth or remember your youth and go searching for some more, some more truths? Mm. Okay. So I have a feeling there's a kind of a virginal attitude about making a moral argument. And this was actually inspired by hanging out with a buddy of mine, an Iranian anesthesiologist who has decided he's a right winger. And I listened to him make his argument and it was done this way. It's like you find a route from where you are to some goal, some ideal maybe. Yeah. And it's all made of stepping stones that are each an individual moral argument. Every moment you say, this is the number one moral priority. It triumphs, it trumps all others forever. And then the next moment you switch to another moral priority and you keep on moving through and you can make an argument and you feel like you've actually accomplished world saving. Yeah. You, you found one route and the whole point of a good education is to notice that it's a map and it's a tangled map. And that you've got a route, big deal. Someone else has got a different route, um, you know. And so you're going to have to you're going to have to do something besides this this version where you basically ad hoc put together, you slap together a bunch of moral arguments to defend whatever you find, whatever your impulses demand in the moment. Well, so that's the question, right? And that's the existential question is, what do you do about it, right? So, okay, you're struggling with the fact that I can make an argument pro-abortion, you can, you can make an argument against abortion, and we could flip-flop because both of us know the arguments, and it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because there are two arguments, right? And this can be the same about everything. How do you actually make a decision then as a, as a society? Um, That's a great question. Let me see. Uh, and... Uh, I can only tell you my guess about it. Mm-hmm. Um, at about 40, at about your age, I joined the world's largest hippie commune. Which I want to hear more about, by the way. Okay. Yeah, yeah it was it was fabulous fun. I learned a lot from it. We just had a reunion a couple of weeks ago. It was great. These guys are old now. Um, but anyway, um, they were about 10 years older than me. But anyway, um, I... I don't think the farm was a, a cult. I mean, most I, it wouldn't meet the standards. I speak at cult conferences. I study cults. But I know I was cultish there. I was totally uh, thrilled 
by the relief from all doubt and burdens from having found the formula. And the formula actually was one of these kind of love is the answer sort of things. Be generous. um, Always be open to everyone. Give to, you know, always give or whatever. Um, We tumbled down over that. But after that, I kind of went into the Buddhist New Age stuff before it was New Age. By the time it was New Age, it looked really tacky to me. But but this is early hippie. This is kind of hippie stuff. Um, okay. At one point, though, I I met a bunch of cosmic wedgies. I had cosmic wedgies. That is, I was really pulled up short by things in my circumstances. And I started to look for a grounding and somehow or other realized that from my perspective, scientific approaches were going to work better. I don't mean the science that is today's science. After all, part of what I'm doing is hammering away at today's science, saying that we're not uh, machines, we're different. We have to explain trying. That, you know, so I, I end up arguing with science itself a lot, but the methodology, I think, is a great one, which is um, to get what you want, set aside what you want long enough to see what is. Um, uh, and I and I really admired it. To get what you want, you set it aside. This would be true if you want to get a if you want to start a business, if you want to get a girlfriend, set aside your want. It's only going to taint your uh, your interpretation of it. And try and look with the power of neutral thinking as closely as you can at the situation, so you can get what you want. I mean, I so, well, what's that? You that doesn't make sense to me. So let's say I want to, we'll say get a girlfriend. Works yes. that. So you want to get a girlfriend. So you set aside your want for a girlfriend and then long enough to to examine the situation, to figure out what she wants. It's, it's the heart of marketing. Marketing is to know your customer so well that the product sells itself. That's what Peter Drucker said. Yep. That means that's the power of neutral thinking. That is you get out for, you know, I, I, I worked in the business world for a while and there were, Lots of entrepreneurs who were so drunk on the idea of their idea that they thought it ought everybody ought to be as excited about it as they are, yeah. even though they, they didn't recognize the founder's uh, fascination with their idea. Yeah, I, yeah, sure, I'm into the idea because it's gonna it, it my identity's all wrapped up in it. But that ain't true of the the average customer. So what I'm saying is that in all aspects of life, I'm not just talking about scientific lab research i'm saying in all aspects you generally will have a better chance of being strategic if you get neutral for long enough to actually assess your situation so finding out what the woman really wants instead of thinking oh no she's got to love me and she doesn't love me and she's gonna she's she's uh she's a bad person or whatever like that so anyway no but i get that i ended up i ended up becoming interested in the origins of things. So for example, in this new book I just wrote on psychoproctology, I have to explain the emergence of of assholes Mm -hmm. from humans, from organisms. I have to find, I have to try and find the, how things changed, how things evolved throughout such that I can explain it. Now, this, I've gotten way off your question, and your question was a great one, which was, how do you make better decisions? Yeah. Here's here's where I'd go. Forget everything I just said. It's relevant, but it's a long, it's a it's what they call in comedy a long walk. Um, <laughs> here's my answer. In versatility or vice versatility, that is, you want to, if you think about it from a tennis court perspective, you're on a tennis court, you're playing against someone, an opponent, 
The opponent lobs a ball way over to one side of the court. You go over there. If you you could make a mistake of thinking, okay, he's definitely going to be on the other side next, or he's going to definitely be over here. No, in between, every time you're waiting for the ball to come back, you stay limber in the middle, remembering that the ball could be on either side. Got it. Got it. Um, and this is they say this in investment too. When they the big investment houses, they have a meeting in which they, after they've made a decision, they work through, or I think probably before and after, they work through all the ways in which this could be ironically horrible. Yeah. That is, they have to be aware of the ways in which it could be wrong. And as a result, they'll do a better job, not a perfect job, of deciding when to hold and when to fold. Well, that's one of the big things in venture capital, right? People totally, totally. New businesses. Uh, it's, it's so much better if somebody makes a presentation that says, here's why all my all of my uh, products are bad. And this is every way uh, yeah. to go wrong. No, it's, and, and see that that's actually back to that thing about to be able to spin, unspin, and do both even-handedly. To be able to kick the tires and tear apart your own ideas, I yep. think makes, and so that means that, so the inversatility, I mean the versatility to do vice versas, to invert things, to see it from one side and the other side, I think is a, I think that's actually the point about wisdom. So I actually find the serenity prayer just fabulous. You know, I, I have a PhD in decision theory. It was, I, I think it's the best crafted thing, and I've made probably 35 different variations on it. But check what out is what is yeah, the what serenity is. prayer. It, um, grant me the serenity to accept what I can't change, the courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You ever heard that thing before? I think. No, it got really popular, and yet I'm kind of amazed by the people who don't know it. It's what they say at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, though that's a little weird because they're trying to change themselves. But the but um, but check this out. It's laying out in it's laying out two opposite behaviors. Imagine that you have this girlfriend now, and she does something hella annoying. I know you guys don't say hella anymore, but I still do. <laughs> and it wasn't even my generation. So bear with me for a second. At night, when you're getting in bed, she flosses between her toes with her socks. Yes. And that's really, it really bugs you. So you got two, you got three basic moves, but I'm going to talk about two. One is you can overlook it. You can have the serenity to accept it, which is going to take the courage actually for you to change your standards because you don't, this does not meet your standards. Yeah. Okay. So you can either have the serenity to accept it, or you can try to change it, which means you have to pay attention to it. You're not going to change something unless you actually attend to it. So they're opposites. Either you're going to try to ignore it, or you're going to pay attention to it to change it. And these actually translate. The first one is fake it till you make it. No, it doesn't bother me. You can go ahead and floss like that. The other one is face it till you make it. We got to face this. I am not comfortable with you doing that at night, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. The wisdom to know the difference. That's a weird phrase, but at least it points out that wisdom is the, the ability to know when to do opposite things. And I actually think what he's, what we really mean by it is the wisdom to notice the differences that make a difference. Yeah. Like to notice what's important, right? What's impo yeah. And to make a guess about whether you're better off tucking in your elbows to make room for your partner's toe cheese uh, flossing or jutting them out to say, this won't stand here. 
Either yeah. one can can work. There's not a there's not a perfect solution there. You're guessing, and of course, there's the third option, which is to break up. And those are the three options over and over, which is, uh, you know, you know, take it, leave it, or uh, or try to change it. Those are basically the options. Or so. blow everything out of the water. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, like I think the final conclusion that I came in terms of making a decision was I just need to figure out values, right? Values are are pretty much the end of it because we place so much importance on certain things and we place so much imp- very little importance on others. And that's just how it is at the end of the day. Like you asked, what is the difference between a liberal and a conservative? It's just their values. And me. I, yeah, I would actually say something slightly different than that, but but I kind of see where you're going with this. There's there's a way in which it resonates with my approach. But sorry to interrupt. Actually, no, it's okay. I mean, it's just you know, I just wonder, so, you know, yeah, like what I guess. What well, more? so here, so I'm good buddies with the local uh, woman who founded Move On, which was a big national uh, leftist organization. And then she started something after she left that, passed it on to other people. Uh, She started something called Living Room Conversations. And she brings together liberals and conservatives to talk about their values. I like that. I like it too. But we started doing regular weekly walks uh, around the time Trump got elected. And I was just beginning to work on the psychoproctology thing. Mm-hmm. And I was actually arguing that psychoproct that that assholes are not. It's not that they have different values. You could say that they have the the value of always feeling heroic. That's a value, but that's actually not what we mostly mean by values, which is yeah. compassion or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a tension between us because I was thinking, no, the last thing you want to do with an asshole is. Uh, enable them by pretending that they have acting like they have values. They don't have values. They, you know, they, they will say whatever they will do or say anything to feel heroic moment to moment. But isn't that a value? It, yes, you could say so. So even, yes, there's two versions of what values mean. Okay. One is, so check this out. Science is supposed to be value neutral. What we really mean is that it values neutrality. Okay, got it. Okay, all right. And um, math is supposed to be value neutral too, pure math. It's mm-hmm. not, actually. It's got a deep value. It's completely dedicated to, to coherence, never being con- self, con- never contradicting itself. That's yep. what they're, yeah. So if you define values broad enough, I'm basically saying that values live in every organism. You can't be alive without valuing yes okay um it's it's evident in your in your behaviors your behaviors of all the things you could do you do the things that basically exhibit your values and then there's a relativist yeah yeah okay but then the the uh the other version of it is um values are these highfalutin things like i value integrity or i value love or i value harmony or i value uh I mean, it's a variety of them. And, um, you know, these days I've begun to call myself a libertarian socialist or a conservative liberal. I mm-hmm. I think those names are BS. That is, um, uh, if you think of conservatives as wanting to keep the things, some things the same and mm-hmm. progressives as wanting to change them, that's nonsense. To keep things the same, you have to change things. 
to, to change things, you have to keep some things the same. So for example, a conservative could say, I want to maintain my lifestyle. I want to conserve my lifestyle. And therefore I'm going to ignore climate change. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let the change, I'm going to let the, the climate change so that I can preserve my lifestyle. And a liberal might say, I want to preserve my climate and therefore I want uh, I want to change our lifestyles. Okay. So in a way, they're both rationalizations. Nobody lives by one or the other. Um, so I have trouble with the idea of mono, uh, uh, monolith values, the idea that I am someone who values this above all else. I value good above all else, but what's good is open to debate. Yeah. And it's also very circumstantially dependent. Um, but uh, so there are two moves I won't make. One is the one where you claim to have one absolute value, because I actually don't think we can. So we, we, we value something, and then the next minute we might value its opposite, depending on the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, so, for example, I value, um, I value give and take. But I don't think that if I sat down with Hitler, I could say, look, you want to kill six million of us. I want you to kill zero. So let's settle on three million. That's not how you do that. There are situations in which I want to give. There are situations where I want to take. I'm trying to pay attention to that. Um, but uh, there, So one version is you pretend you have one overarching value and you tattoo it on your neck. Um, the other is that you collect up as many values as you can. Um and pretend that that's high status, uh, that, that high moral status, because you can claim, because you can pull out your butt or your golf bag, whatever you need in the moment, um, that proves you're more moral. Interesting. I, I see that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. And, and the example I use is it predates you. There was a famous Philippine dictator whose wife, when they when he was kicked out, um, they discovered Imelda Marcos had an enormous collection of shoes. So I think some people collect moral values the way Imelda Marcos collected <laughs> shoes. That is, if the more you can pull out your butt as you need them, the more the more moral you are. That is not morality. I do believe in moral triage. We have to decide what's the priority moral things. What take what morals will take care of themselves. What moral things do you. Uh, uh, are hopeless. We're not going to be able to turn it around. What morals are priorities to work on? That's triage. Okay. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, okay. So here's one of the things that I guess I was wondering throughout this yeah. whole, it seems like you change your values very often, right? So you were 20, you got into this hippie community and yeah. then 37 comes around, you change your values like crazy. And now you're <laughs> a completely different person. And that's one of the things that you did on your, um, semi podcast well it was a podcast right where you um where you literally debate yourself you debate yourself and i asked so first of all how were the values of the hippie community that's that's one of the things that i've been wondering about because first of all you had to change your values so that makes me think that there's something wrong with them but at the same time it seems like you enjoyed it so oh no yeah so so um the values were good. They were, these are decent people. I mean, I just hung out with them last two weeks ago and I just, I just remarked to myself what thoroughly decent people they were who would take a radical move like this to join a commune, to throw their lot in with them. We're talking about a very cult, different cultural moment. 
These were mostly middle-class and upper-middle-class Americans mm -hmm. um, during a period when you could actually imagine taking off and doing something really risky and you'd still make it okay uh, at, at a career. That's a wild time. Very different from now. What was this, the 70s, 80s? 70s. So I joined in 76. The thing started, I think, in 70. Um, I was late to it. I was about 10 years younger than these guys. And um, and we worked our butts off. It was a the the work ethic there was fabulous. It was um just what I needed because I had lived a kind of a cushy, abstract, you could say, in my head life until then. Yeah. Um you know, I went to UC Santa Cruz at a time when you could get university credit for you could get five units of university credit uh, for keeping a dream journal. I mean, it was totally Mickey Mouse back then. Yeah. Um, that's why I left it. I was I, I, I thought I, I need to get grounded in the real world. And I wanted to do something like the commune. So we the commune, we worked really hard. We built 175 buildings. We had uh, I worked for two and a half of the seven years I was there. I lived I worked in Guatemala designing water projects for poor rural villages, designing and implementing water projects. It was killer. We what had, was the reason why you did it? Well, I did it. So, so actually I did it. Um, this is unique to my situation, not unique, but it's uh, fairly unique to my situation, but also very in keeping with that time and culture. So I grew up in a upper middle-class Jewish family on the south side of Chicago. Um, wow. And uh, and yeah, the south side of Chicago was a big Jewish community back then. It, um, uh, and I inherited money at 16. And okay. this is during the counterculture. So at 16, I already have, you could say, a vocational derailment. Um, that is, I didn't have to make a living. Yeah. And that was weird. It was a weird thing. But also, I understand why my dad did it. It was, it was a peculiar situation. I felt really guilty about it. I I thought, you know, why me? I, this is totally weird. I was an anxious guy anyway, and I was also a really late bloomer. I had no idea what to do until I was about 37. I mean, I went from job to job trying to figure out what I was good for. Okay. Um, and the money was lucky this way because it allowed me to take entry-level positions in all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, until I a slow a slow starter like me could finally figure out what he's good for. Um, uh, I joined in part to overcome that. We were voluntary peasants. That is, you sign when you went to the when you joined the commune, you signed a vow of poverty. You mm -hmm. gave up your personal goods. There was nothing Soviet or communist about us. We were hippies, but we <laughs> were about to save the world, and we were designing a graceful. You could say it was one of the first eco-villages. We were trying to design a sustainable lifestyle that would be a blast, would be a great fun, um, mm -hmm. but it would also be living lighter on the earth. And so the idea, so giving up your material possessions, and yet all day long we worked with material possessions, they were just collectively owned. So we had cars, but they were collectively owned. If you needed a car, you could grab one. Um, you know, we were, you know, I was on carpentry crews we'd send out a hundred monkeys a day and that's like a hundred of us we called ourselves monkeys <laughs> and we go out and uh i became a roofer i became a plumber a carpenter um i ran a pump truck um i was in charge of buying all the goods and services for the for the commune i was an elected elder of the commune at 24 <laughs> interesting 
Yeah, so, and I was really gung-ho. So why did I join? Because it felt really like a good, and, and I got to say, I joined and gave up my inheritance. That is, I said, I don't deserve this. I'm giving it up. I gave away what I had at the time. There was more after I left. But, um, and lucky for me, because I during those years, I didn't even pursue a career. I would do whatever the commune needed. And I loved the relief of feeling like I was making a change in the world. Um, this was at a time when it was we were more naive about how change was coming down. We thought that the world was going to become increasingly enlightened and um, and compassionate and all of that. That was what the hippies thought. We didn't foresee the backlash. Ideologues never do foresee the backlash. They can picture the moment of victory and the happily ever after. They do not imagine that the, the world's going to come after them. I mean, yep. you, you know, imagine imagine if you end up in marketing and you your co- your company hits big and you think there we've landed we're all we're on the plateau no you're not the competition will tear you apart that's when they'll notice you right oh uh, yep everyone has a everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face exactly and if you and if your plan starts to succeed you'll get punched in the face yep <laughs> so so i mean that's that's the problem and you you see this with all of the famous revolutions in the world the russian revolution the backlash was fierce and they had no they did not expect it they just thought that everybody would roll out so the values are fabulous, but they, the answers we had there became the springboards to my next questions. Okay. For example, so to give you an illustration, after the reunion, I end up online in a chat, uh, in, a, in a, a threaded conversation um, in which two former members who had become Trumpists um, started uh, taunting Okay. Uh, okay. And other people try to, to address their values. Now I'm in the business of trying to figure out how to disappoint trolls. That is, I don't think you can get, I don't think you can stop assholes unless it costs them to be an asshole. Yeah. So I'm no longer trying to reach out to them. If I, I'm trying to make very careful bets, that's what I spent these last four years trying to research and write up. What's the most objective way to diagnose assholes. Um, and it's got nothing to do with what they claim to believe. And it's, it's, that's a whole other story. But once I know I'm dealing with someone, once I bet that I'm dealing with someone like that, I try to disappoint them. Okay. I try to trust them. But, but basically, here's the challenge. I think of a troll or an asshole as like an ex- exhibitionist. They'll pretend they want a conversation or an argument. Only to get your attention, once they've got you, they'll open their trench coat and show off their stiff little heroic Mm self-certainty. And as long as you respond in a predictable way, they have a way to claim heroic triumph. So I've been trying to figure out how to confuse them. And I go on there, and here I am doing it in front of the love is the answer people who I used to live with. And I start hearing from folks who say, you know, uh, you should never... When you disagree with someone, you should never uh, back off of them. And I said, I, it's fine if you believe that. That's not what I believe. If that were true, you'd have to stay in horrible marriages or whatever. I mean, it sounds good on paper until you look, until you start looking for counterexamples. Yeah. And by the way, that is what I do with every moral principle I hear, is that when someone states a moral principle, I look for counterexamples. That's in versatility. That is, I, I can find the examples easily, but I want to find the counterexamples. If there are counterexamples, then it's not as universal principle as they make out. So he says, you know, you should never 
You should never fight. One version of this is never fight with pigs. You'll just get dirty. The pig likes it. Or uh, uh, love trumps hate. No, it doesn't. Not always. Far from it. You know, yeah. you, sometimes it's something. No. So it was interesting to watch. There were lots of people who were kind of really interested in what I was doing. Because I was loving the guy, I was just hating the lifestyle, and I was, and I wasn't going to take up any of the values that the guy was claiming to have, because I don't think he has values. And if he, if if I take them up, what they're really doing is it's a power move. They're trying to frame the debate so they, as long as they take to control the debate, they've won. They don't yeah. actually care what the it's about. And notice that if you're playing by moral rules, you're much more constrained than if you can do anything you want. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to enter that. That's stupid. So. So what I'm saying back to your question is that my my thinking has evolved. I wouldn't there have been some major hairpin turns in my life, but they're not radical shifts. They're mostly accumulations. They're mostly both ends where I believe something and now I believe it wholeheartedly. And I'm busy paying attention to the relationship between it and its other half. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things that I realized in my life and I was actually just talking to my friend about this the other day. Yeah is like, okay, you know, we sit there and we say, I know what I want, right? I go to the Kelly School of Business. So, you know, marketing, right? I'm in marketing partially. And, you know, in the Kelly School of Business, which is, you know, a top prestigious business school in the nation, we have kids who love finance, right? They're like, oh, I love my finance. I want to be on Wall Street as an investment banker and blah, 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 doing all this stuff. And then I ask them the question, I go, is that what you want? Right? And- it's such a deep question because like, you know, people don't really sit to think about it in that deep way. Of course, of course, that's what they want. Like, of course. But then at the same time, we could just easily, easily come to the conclusion that it's been what's programmed in them since, since they were in high school. Right. So the, then, yeah, the- yeah. so I, I never claim to know myself um, that well. That is if someone tells me, so here you're talking about preferences and amen to that. What you're talking about with preferences, it's very hard to tell what's driving us. Um, Which is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I never do anything for just one reason. It never has just one effect. Uh, it's very complicated. Um, my dad said about that last part, he said, life is like playing piano with oven mitts on. You, <laughs> you, 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 you go to hit a note and you end up hitting a bunch of others too. So there's all of that complication. On top of that, in my life, because I was so slow waking up um, to what I wanted to do with myself, what I was good for, um, I was highly suggestible. That is, if someone said, you want this, okay, I, I suddenly I wanted that. I was really that 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 naive about it. Um, and then on top of that, uh, this was another point sl- somewhat related is that I, I don't believe I am an authority on myself. I don't subscribe to the, what I call walk, uh, talk is walkism. If I say I have a trait, it must mean I have that trait. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get to say, don't tell me how I feel. I know how I feel. I don't allow myself to say that. It's not like the other person's an authority on what I feel. They can have their interpretation. I can have mine. But I don't get to claim authority on who I am and what I am. Now, you have to sometimes pose as something. Yeah. For example, to get a job and all of that, you have to look very confident in it. Um, But I also think it's a little dangerous. It's worth keeping in mind that 
Self-knowledge is really tricky business. You can't find a touch of your subject. So yes, you're intimate with yourself, but that, that speaks both for and against you actually knowing what's going on with you. Reporting, uh, reporting bias is a major problem. That's a, that's a big Buddhist principle. The seer cannot see himself. Yeah, right? yeah. And yeah. it's like, you know, I see that all the time. Actually, I had this guy, Doug Noel, on my podcast, and he just, he talked about just like, we have this existential problem in that we just don't know how we feel at all times. We just get these emotions that come up within us and we just don't recognize them right away. And, and wouldn't, want to, wouldn't want to notice half of them. That is a lot of, uh, if I actually saw myself, I'd be kind of disappointed. <laughs> I mean, I'd be delighted in some ways and totally crushed in other ways. It's very complicated. And then to do that when you're young. So we're not born with a packing slip. We don't have an inventory on who we are. And not only that, while we're trying to figure out who we are, we're morphing radically. We're cha- we're, tra- we're tracking a moving target. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I don't resign myself to... Um, so the, the, there's something I call the doctrine of foregone inconclusion, which is... You can't know anything for sure. Therefore, any guess is as good as any other. That's not the same as fallibilist irony. It's closer to the cynical hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. I try, I, I have my guesses about who I am. They revise over the time. Um, they're a little limber. They're also not completely limber. They're my guesses. I, I assume that I could be dead wrong about it. In fact, I do something I call pre-grieving, which is, I imagine the darkest interpretations of me possible um, uh, carefully, gingerly, not all the time. It's not like I'm obsessed with them, but I'm trying to get comfortable with them So because I get a, a fair amount of hate mail for the, the articles and stuff I write. Um, and I don't want that to be the first time I've considered the possibility that I'm a doofus or whatever. So, for example, yeah, last week, two people at least told me I was a total asshole. And, um, and, and they could be right. I mean, that's, if I don't want to be an asshole, I have to assume I have to take, I have to accept some anxiety about that. So I keep it in mind. And I also think if you wonder if you're an asshole, it's a good sign that you're probably less likely to be one, but yeah, still, you don't know. yeah, you don't know, but I don't know. So, um, I don't want to be shocked by that defensive against it or taking it on full, uh, full tilt. So I have my guesses about who I am. They could be way off or not. They're the best guesses I've got so far, you know. <laughs> and that's it. That's all you and got. Some of them, and some of them are delusional self-flattery. That is, I believe in optimal illusion. I believe in kidding myself in ways that help more than harm. So I have to be uncommonly optimistic about myself. Um, but I don't want it to get in the way. I don't want to become a legend in my own mind and blind. Oh, and I notice this. What a question. What a question. I mean, you know, like I'm a, I'm a hypnotist, right? So I do a lot of hypnosis. Oh, I think. Hypnotherapy. It's cool. It's awesome. Yeah. And You know, one of the things that you'll realize is that you could change your opinion of yourself all the time, no matter what you do. Yeah. You talk say, about plasticity. It's oh, it's, yeah. It's the easiest thing. You could walk in and you could say, okay, literally some guy can come up to you and hypnotize you and say, when you walk into this party, you walk into this room, you are the most attractive, confident guy in this room. Everyone else envies you. And you know what? Screw it. Your name is Brad Pitt. You're Brad Pitt. And if someone asks you if your name is Chad, no, it's Brad. It's Brad Pitt. And you could hypnotize someone to do that and they'll walk around, strut their stuff, and they will be 
they will act as if they're better than everyone else. And surprisingly, if they're speaking in front of a stage or if they're trying to pick up women or yeah. whatever, they are going to be more successful than they were as if they were just a regular definitely, person, definitely even though they're that. fooling themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, so we are highly suggestible. And, and it's great that you noticed that. And also, um, yeah, you're, you're developing quite the toolkit between psychology and hypnotism and marketing. Uh, yeah. Try to do something good with it for crying out loud. <laughs> well, it's just the toughest balance that you're trying to strike. Oh, right? no joke. No joke. And, and no, I, I, there's this wonderful article about some guys who started out to do clickbait. This is early on. I could probably send you the article. This was early on in the clickbait world. And sure. just to watch their migration into saying whatever will get the clicks. They, they start out with some high ideals. Um, it would be really tempting. There's nothing quite so tangible as uh, and self-affirming as uh, as making coin, you know. So yeah. yeah, I get it. Oh, trust me. I mean, I've been I've been struggling with that debate for a very long time. You know, you sit there and you're like, all right, do I want a genuine marketing strategy or do I just put some crazy clickbait? And for you know, I I I have a moral strategy. So on accident, I put one clickbait, one clickbait video. That was it, and it got. 50 times the amount of views as my other videos yeah. just that one thing and for years i was like i can't i can't change the other ones to fit that because if i do that then i'm just another right and so yeah so i'm in a weird situation that way because i don't actually need money or status anymore yep. i'm 65 it's not you know my influence is going to be limited and i got i don't need status in order to keep food on the table um, the more dependence, if you end up married with kids, then you'll definitely, uh, you'll be even more tempted to move towards the money and status thing. They are a bit of a distraction. They don't, they don't, um, but it would be very hard for someone who is living close to the bone, living on the edge, not to go towards whatever sells. Yeah. Um, that's just, that's, that's one of the challenges. I don't know what we're going to do about it. One thing I can say is that, um, Spin evolves faster than uh, unspin. Yes. That is, when we discover a way to get more eyeballs, we never forget it. But mm -hmm. a sucker is born every minute. So there's a way in which we can hardly keep up with the spin at the rate it's developed. You know. Well, well I actually have a question, and this this is kind of, I guess, a little bit off but you know one of the best things about you is that you have no monetary <laughs> interest whatsoever but at the same time you're a marxist dream bro you are a marxist <laughs> dream like marx you know predicted he's like you know what take away the money incentives and people will still love to work and they'll still love to do things and they'll still want to think they get to pursue religion philosophy and become yeah. these higher level creatures and you've succeeded <laughs> so well and oh like First of all, question, how do you feel about capitalism given that and also given the fact that you're a hippie for seven years? And then also, you know, do you think that other people can emulate you like that? Um, so. Uh, I know, I know. No, 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 it's great. It's great. I had two, I had two answers right away. I just want to try to remember. Um, uh, I think that capitalism is, um, is the natural way of things for all of life. That is, in this respect, the, the object of the game for 3.8 billion years was biological reproductive success. Yes. Um, and if you measure merit by performance versus effort, 
nature measures by performance. Mm-hmm. It's it's as ruthless as a boss who fires the guy who's trying doubly hard and is not doing as well as the guy who's not trying at all and is performing better. Because you nature know, kills. Yeah. No, no, obviously there's going to be killing, but the question is, is the lion going to cut some slack to the gazelle that's really trying, but isn't keeping up? No, that's a human thing. You actually need language before you can even imagine uh, that level of, uh, you know, that that much um, uh, theory of mind to be able to imagine how much effort someone else is making. Yes. We are unique in that we are trying to balance measuring merit by performance versus effort that is we don't kill our young when they are runs we uh if i had enough money to put pay for summer camp for my two kids and one of them is a gifted kid and the other one is special needs i'd struggle yeah because i'm i i have to decide whether you know where to put it that's a human thing that's that's a human complication if you look at nature it is you could say capitalists, and you would also say that a Donald Trump or a Joseph Stalin are highly evolved spe- uh, organisms. You'd say they're super duper predators because not only are they predators, but they also are, uh, they can rationalize their preter- uh, pre- predatoriness and all of that. So, so, and also they're, they're doing great things for their lineage. And if you say, yeah, but it's going to undermine their lineage in the long run if they don't deal with climate change or something like that. Yeah, but no organism has that kind of foresight. Nobody is paying attention to how to save the world in the animal world. So so I have to embrace that disappointing fact about it. I do not think that um, I've read von Mises, the libertarian, and I've read Marx, and they sound the same. They're both a joke to me in that respect. The idea that there are scientific laws that they have uncovered about the social cluster flux, and that from now on, all we have to do is um, is strive for the inevitable. Is what they is based, which is another paradox. Okay, kind of silly, but I do have to recognize that our origins are in something like that. That natural selection itself has that quality to it, and that it's a human unique problem to care about and be concerned for others. So, kind of but, like capitalism is a bit of a game where people have to perform and reach the top, and you know, something like communism just gets completely rid of the game. No, communism, communism and libertarianism will never, ever be tried. And here's why. You have to loosen the soil in order to make such radical changes. And whenever you loosen the soil, the first thing that grows up is is asshole tyrants and fascists. Yeah. Just yeah. like what happened in Russia and what happened if there were ever a libertarian state. There's no question about it in my mind. They, they're not, they're not triable. They're uh, there are figments of ultimate satisfaction that are simplistic. They're one-sided or another. It's absurd to have thought for 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 Marx to have assumed that we would all end up becoming uh, gen scholars if we didn't have to worry about money. Still, let me say something about that, and I'm going to draw a parallel that's going to surprise you. All um, right, let's do it. Uh, you need vitamin C from outside of you. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, a dog and a cat or any other mammal except for guinea pigs doesn't need it. They generate their own vitamin C. You used to generate your own vitamin C too, not you personally, but 3.5, 3, 35 million years ago, we had the same genetic capability. We've traced it. We now know where the genes are that, that, that made it so we could autosynthesize our own antioxidants because that's what it is. You know, energy is degenerative. It, it degenerates things. Oxygen is highly reactive 
it will degenerate us. We rust if we don't get vitamin C. We need it as protection. Okay. So what happened? 35 years, 35 million years ago, we end up in trees and at, with access to fruit. Now we've got two ways to make vitamin C. Okay. We can either produce it ourselves or we can get it from food from fruit. And as a result, we lost our ability to produce vitamin C. Hmm. So now we're addicted to it from the outside. This is an addiction is the right word for it. Take away the pejorative connotations and all that. You know, what is a what is an opiate addiction or morphine addiction? It's it's where you have replaced your ability to produce your own morphine. You and I are on morphine right now. Endorphins are morphine. Same model, same, same molecule, same receptor. So yeah. if you get it from an external source, like we got the fruit from an external source. You downregulate the, the production of your own endorphins, and now you're addicted to morphine from the outside. Okay. Yes. So now, there are there are also situations in which, in biology, in which you there are two ways to do something, just like with the vitamin C and the fruit. I mean, the internal vitamin C, and what happens is you end up evolving some new capability from the old capability. They, that's no longer necessary. So think about this like a sabbatical. They give you time off from work. Someone else is doing your job. So you're freed up. Yeah. You can either go the way the vitamin C gene did, which is it turns into junk DNA. It's not working anymore. It's non-functional. That is, there are plenty of sabbatical taking professors who end up regretting that they didn't get anything done <laughs> during their time off because all of that relaxed pressure, they don't, they were not under pressure they just relaxed and became uh, kind of useless. But there are also plenty who end up using that freedom and doing something interesting and useful from it. That's what's behind Skunk Works. That's what's behind R&D. Someone else is handling their jobs. R&D can go off and maybe they'll find something useful to do with the skills they've already got. Mm -hmm. Our color vision, our ability to distinguish colors originated as a way to distinguish ripe from unripe fruit. Yes. And why did that happen? Because we used to have all, we used to need all, when we were nocturnal living on the ground, we needed all of the rods we could get because they were, we needed to capture every photon possible. We were nocturnal creatures. Now we're up in trees and we're diurnal. We're up in the daytime and we didn't need all that real estate to be filled out with uh, black, uh, black and white, you know, monochromatic color. And they mutated and become the cones representing three different colors useful for mm -hmm. distinguishing right from unread. So what I'm saying is when you cut something slack, it either becomes a slacker or it takes up that slack and uses it for something new. That's the yeah. long, that was a long walk, but I can see where I, I hope you can no, see but where I'm, it makes yeah, so, it makes yeah. so much sense. Like you notice it in people all the time, right? Like do people do homework for a grade or do they, do they do it because they enjoy learning or because they really want to do the work and they establish their own self goals. And if you were to pull away the grades, you were to pull away the goals, will people still be as productive? And I do hypnotism for productivity at yeah, my university. Yeah, yeah. And the clear answer is people will do something because not, not only for the grade, but because that's going to get them into a better career and that's going to make them more money. And it's all a system. And, and that's, and that's okay. I actually, I just realized what was weird about my situation. I had two, I did not attend a single class for seventh, eighth and ninth grade. 
Mm. Back then, there was a school system that made it so classes were not compulsory. I went off to the the school in upstate New York. I was there um, for those grades. A really different time. We're talking about, well, I'm talking about the late 60s, early 70s. it was really good for me. The school was designed to make it so that you'd have to find your own motivation. There mm. were no external extent is uh, um, uh, no, n- you were not obligated to do it for others. One of my buddies from back then became the head animator for us, the Simpsons, the chief animator for the Simpsons. So there were people, and there were others who came out of there not necessarily as productive as that, but it was designed to make kids bored. You could have no drugs, no alcohol, no TV. Other than that, the day was completely yours, and all other rules were made, one person, one vote, staff and students. It was a completely wild situation. And then to follow that with the boot camp that the farm was, the commune was, on the commune, the rule was if anyone ever asked you to do anything, the answer was yes. No one was asking. The peer pressure was intense. People were incredibly decent. It was not your free love commune. You couldn't have sex until you were engaged to be married. I was celibate from 20 to 23, if you can imagine. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but but we worked really hard, and that was great for me. And at this point, I mean, when I hang out with wealthy people who don't have any wind in their sails, mm-hmm. it scares me. It creeps me out. I, I'm like a shark. I need to have. I need to feel productive all the time. I need to feel like I'm moving, or I feel like I'm going to die. So there's a part of me that really likes having my own internal whip. Well, that's one of the things that is, first of all, super weird, right? Like the fact that we humans. Well, first of all, it's so much more efficient. Let's let's agree with that. It's so much more efficient just to have a whip, right? Have an external whip, you know, carrot and stick, like just give somebody some, some external thing. And I was actually just talking to my friend about this the other day, like college kids struggle so much with waking up in the morning. We can't wake up. I, it's great. You need the external whips. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, if you have to get up for a class versus getting up for your own personal good, it's, it's a completely different motivational system. But at the same, at the end of the day, it's like, it's kind of better, right? Like I I'm kind of on your wavelength here. I'm like, it's so much better doing stuff for yourself and not having to do something for other people. My, my definition of happiness for me Mm. is having work for which I have infinite patience. Hmm. That is, that is that, you know, so when I write a book, I throw out easily as much as remains in the book. I, you know, I'll throw out 500 pages. Um, when I discover an error or something I can improve upon, I'm willing to toss it. I have infinite patience for my work. Um, It's a marketing. A lot of my work is marketing. I'm trying to figure out how to make complicated ideas more easy and accessible and familiar and intuitive and resonant and better brain Velcro. That's what I'm after. Um, It's a big chunk of the work. Um, So if I find a better way to say something, I will. But then I'm in a position where I'm not under deadline. Yeah, my next deadline is really death. (laughs) Other than that, I don't have. I don't. I mean, I. I. You know, there's the occasional academic thing due or whatever. But I get to work all day to my own centers. This is a weird life. I don't know how much to extrapolate from it. Um, I do know that there. Um. And in a way, you're getting to this question that it's related to what goes on with us around free will and determinism. Oh, of course. People talk like they want free will. I don't think that's all we want. I think we want free will and determinism. I want a ratchet. I want determinism to keep me from falling. And I want free will to climb higher. 
Yeah. I also want determinism to mo mobilize me, to motivate me to climb higher. Um, but I also want freedom to let go of it, uh, of that motivation. If I decide that I don't want to climb higher, higher in that direction, this is related to getting married. Actually, if you want to get mar married, marriage or, e or even just partnering with someone hot, these guys are going to be a big influence on your life. If you want to predict where someone's going to end up in a few years, just pay attention to who their partner ended up being. They will, chances are, have have become whatever is necessary to make that work, or they will have left it. Yeah. Okay, so what do you want in a partner? Yeah, you want them to be hot, but the problem with hot is if they're hot and motivating you to do the wrong thing, that's only going to make you do the mo wrong thing more. What you want is a partner who constrains you in ways that you want to be constrained, that is an external constraint that motivates you to be who you want to be, but doesn't constrain you in the ways that you don't want to be constrained. And you likewise, you want the freedom. And the, the, I think of it as I want someone who rubs me right and wrong, the right ways, not the wrong ways. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to have to break that down a little bit. So you're saying that, well, how would they constrain you? They constrain you because you would not be able to get with other people or just like you do something stupid oh, and they say, no. stop. Marriages, are, I mean, anything you do with great intimacy like that, mm -hmm. um, a, a twitch of an eyebrow from your partner will have a profound effect on your, uh, on your feelings. Yeah, that is. I, and, and it was especially true for me. I'm kind of a mama's boy. I, um, I, I've gotten to the point now where I don't, I don't partner. I say that I'm glad that my lack of appetite finally caught up with my lack of aptitude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that good at it because I'm so mouthy. But when you're with a partner, in my case, I really wanted to please a woman. And if I disappointed a woman, it really, um, it was really uncomfortable, really unsettling for me. Mm -hmm. So if you're with a partner, so I'll give you an example of each of those rubbing you right the right ways. They are delighted whenever you get around to doing the things that you've decided you want to do with your life. The, uh, rubbing you the right way, the wrong way. They love it when you uh, shoot up heroin, which you're trying to quit when you drink, they're drinkers. So, and you're trying to quit drinking or cut back on it and they keep on offering you drinks. That's rubbing you right the wrong way. They're delighted when you do what you don't want to be doing. Yeah. And obviously right, rubbing you the wrong way, the right way is if they're discouraging you, it, it, it actually feels uncomfortable to you when you slouch, when you don't get to what you are, your priorities, that's you that you want in a, that in a partner you want external support that's what you go to college for you go for peer pressure people who will grow you in the direction you want to grow by being a little bit uh snarky with you if you don't know what you if you're not coming up with what you're supposed to if they're not interesting so you're yeah. saying there are things that you must do to become compatible with someone else no matter what and that will constrain your actions you will yeah, and, if, and the hotter and more impressive they are to you the more desperate you are to hold on to them the more <laughs> you will be it's like taking an express train to wherever their their priorities take yep. you. <laughs> so it's it's just all of okay you lost your free will deal with it you better hope that it's going to be in the right direction Right, you better hope that it's going to lead you to more towards generally the good than the bad. That's right. That's right. And actually, so so to tie these back around, I think of love and addiction as actually describing the same phenomena. And I would say that the only difference is between them is a prediction about how it will turn out. 
So mm. you get a general sense of this from uh, if you think someone has gotten uh, uh, head copped or mind uh, 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 brainwashed by their partner, you might say, dude, you're just addicted to her. Mm. But if you if you think that it's because you don't think it's going to turn out well, it's going to turn out poorly for him. This is, this can't end well, dude. You're addicted. But if if um, if instead you think it's going to work out well, you'd call it love. So what am I talking about here? I can actually operationalize it. Um, love and addiction are doing dedicated work to maintain something that you are dependent upon. Yes. So of all the things you could do, you will do the things that are necessary to maintain, in the case of a partner, access to someone who you depend upon. How can we tell whether you're dependent on them? If they disappear, uh, are you suddenly not as well? Um, so when I say I'm addicted to vitamin C now that we lo I lost the ability to produce it myself, I'm also saying I'm in love with it. Because I do dedicated work to maintain access to it. That's a little bit of a stretch of the term. At least yeah. I could say I, I definitely am. I prefer having it to not. But at the extreme, I could say if I was having scurvy, if I was suffering from scurvy, yeah, no, I would say, oh, God, would I love an orange right now? So, mm -hmm. so you, you see, it, obviously, there's the questions of degrees, and love isn't quite the right word for it. But um, feels like need. Need feels like the right word. That's well, need or want, and all of that gets down to the elasticity of demand. Actually, a term you must know from school, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I am in love with grocery stores. Um, why? Because I've lost the ability to farm, and I've ended up cultivating this whole lifestyle that depends on grocery stores. Um, I'm not in love with any particular grocery store because there's a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, it's not a proprietary good, the grocery store. It's a commodity. I can go to any one of them. So if this one disappears, um, I can go to another one. Notice how that's different with monogamy. Notice how monogamy actually changes the whole perspective on this. With that, you are looking at a proprietary good. You are partnered with one person and you both tout that you couldn't live with each other without each other. It's a kind of emotional blackmail. Blackmail. If we if we can't make this work, then you will suffer through the uh, breakup. Now I know that things have changed a lot in your world, and that only some people are going this monogamous route. And I and I admire you pioneers. We were earlier pioneers with trying out different configurations, um, uh, and we're all curious how it's going to play out for you guys. But there but there's certainly something that seeks the monogamous. Or there was certainly something cultural and something biological that got deep into monogamy as the yeah. solution. Well, that's and the question. So, how did were you guys tested stuff out? Did you guys find anything interesting or no? Oh, totally. No, we 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 learned lots about it. Um, until twenty three, why would you guys be celibate? I figured you guys would be testing, experimenting. Oh no, no, it was part of the whole. We were very reality based, and we knew that we had to hustle to make this thing work. And the commune was about 1,400 people, and about half of them were young children. And a lot of those children were children of the Haight-Ashbury scene. They were single mothers who had gone through the whole free love thing and ended up with children. Mm. And we would have had so much internal politics, small p politics, if everybody was out banging everybody else. And that's basically how a whole lot of communes fell, is that they were really loose about that stuff. Interesting. Um, so you guys had too many other problems, existential problems we, in the community. Not existential. Yeah, you could say existential, but and not in the philosophical sense. We yeah. had to, 
we had to make this place work for all those people, including that those 700, 700 kids. That's a lot of kids. I lived in households at your age. I was living in a household that was 65 people, half of them under, uh, under the age of eight. Wow. And yeah. then last week I was hanging out with these people and they were, I was 10 years younger. So they were, these are people now 75 and it was just, it was, and we had a blast. I mean, we worked, work was play, play was work. Um, it was indistinguishable. I just loved it, but yeah. also I loved it because it gave me gloating rights because we were saving the world hmm. and because I was free from doubt. I always knew what I would do next. And they say this about the big religions, Islam, for example. They say one of the biggest selling points was it eliminated all debate about your to-do list. You could do all sorts of things. It didn't matter so long as you prayed to Allah five times a day. Mm. The simplifying of a to-do list, we do, doubt is an uncomfortable feeling. And exactly. doubt about what to do is yeah. um, uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, I mean, it gives you a tremendous amount of anxiety. And and trust me, like, I've spent my last four years, right, just trying to essentially shed a lot of cultural constraints that I've been in. And yeah. that leads me to a lot of creating new ideas, coming up with new concepts of how to live my life. Monogamy was a huge one that I had to shed. And I still don't know how I feel about it because I still don't know if I like monogamy or polygamy or whatever, because obviously monogamy has... A tremendous amount of problems, something like 50% cheating rates, 50% divorce rates. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, there's a tremendous amount of doubt of, you know, it would be so much easier if I just followed the cultural. Well, so, so what we're trying to figure out. So I, I have to say, we opened up my marriage at the end. Um, okay. I only had one marriage. It was 16 and a half, uh, half years long. Um, um, we were a generation that our parents... Um, we're pretty strictly monogamous uh, on paper or uh, ostensibly. Yeah. As they've been cheating on the side, but no one was getting divorced in, in my culture. So I have that as a standard to meet. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're trying out open relationship. And the problem with open relationship, at least, uh, it's often the man's clever idea, but the woman is going to prevail in it. And a woman yeah. does far better. A woman can just go, you've seen these studies about a woman going to a bar and saying, will you have sex with me? 90% response. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a man comes up to a woman. It's like 2% response. So, so a woman <laughs> has an advantage that way. Um, and what we're trying to find out about your generation, because your generation grew up in a different culture is whether you're going to have the jealousy issues that we had. Yeah. The jealousy issues that I faced in our open relationship were why I studied evolutionary theory, why I got a PhD mm -hmm. in evolutionary theory, because yeah. it turned, I was trying to figure out why the feeling was so intense. Mm -hmm. And I started to pay attention to biological reproductive success, mother's baby, father's maybe, which is a, a concept in evolutionary psychology that is um, the worst thing you can possibly do. Talk about ironic situations, <laughs> raise someone else's uh, genes as your own. Um, later, I moved on from evolutionary psychology. I think it's actually, I think that for me, it was less about, there might've been some genetic uh, selfishness or uh, genetic stuff. I think it was much more cultural. I felt punked by these guys who were having, uh, yeah. it with my, my wife, but we're interested to see what's going to happen to you guys because it's um, you're a different generation, and it may be that the cultural stigmas around it will have changed. Uh, we also are wondering about um, the 
we are all not just speed dating, we're speed jading. And I just made that up, but yeah, we are it? getting jaded faster than, you know, oh, someone today oh. could see more sex or have more sex than was imaginable by anybody but the highest level emperors. Mm-hmm. And the emperors had a problem with jadedness. Emperors would, and that's that's why they got into Taoist sex practices because they they couldn't keep it up. If they had a harem of five hundred, they were they were losing interest. So yeah. you guys are seeing more movies, more stimulus, more CGI, more sex, more everything. We don't know what it's going to be. Really interesting to see what happens, you guys. Well, and I don't. It's a bad thing necessarily. I mean, I'm into strategic jading. I'm interested in getting jaded to a bunch of things that I don't think are actually a big deal. Mm-hmm. But my body thinks they are, so I love it when I get jaded on them. It's actually a, it's a, it's a good move. <laughs> Define what you mean by jaded, like would jaded. You... Do you know? Do you know the term jaded? It, uh, to be jaded means that you've been there, done that. It's no longer no longer interesting. It's become a habit. It's routine. You know how it's going to end. There's no surprise left in it. Okay. Um, so when we talk about a spoiled brat, they're jaded. You could bring them a present, and they would say, "Oh, another present." Or if you're talking about being jaded on sex, the whole idea that if you're watching porn every day, then everything else is going to be dull. Any real sex is going to be dull. There was a song in the turn of the century. How are you going to get them back on the farm after they've seen Paris? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So that's about jadedness, right? Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you know, I always worry about the jadedness of marriage, right? Like, all right. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was that was one of the reasons why, obviously, there's so many biological, anecdotal and scientific studies is to prove, like, it just gets jaded. And eventually, you don't really feel that strong, powerful connection with, with the person that you're with. They're just more of like an old chair or a reliable nice bed to lay yeah, with. Now, now, so you know my column for psychology today is called ambigamy insights for the deeply romantic and deeply skeptical so mm-hmm. i look at this from both sides i would not say that you can c- conclude that stuff uh universally about marriage i can say that it's definitely half true at least yeah. and it and it addresses a much more fundamental problem um uh, which shows up in existential literature we are our minds are not computers, but what they are is they are virtual computer makers. When we deal with a surprise, it rises to consciousness. When we deal with a surprise because we don't have a ha- habit to handle it already, but we are habit-craving creatures because yes. we're dealing with this cluster f- flux. And so anything we can turn into a habit, we will. And w- that means that it's it's paradoxical. Meditation and marriage are two situations in there which they're we're romanticizing the notion that you can stay fascinated with something that's not changing. Um, you know, to count your breaths is an interesting thing. What's it, what's it, counting your breath is a unjading exercise. You find something really boring and try to stay focused on it. Yeah. Um, okay. Being married is also an unjading exercise. That is, you try to keep your expectations adjusting down to the lack of stimulation in it. But marriages turn out to be a great solution for a whole lot of people, um, even though what they love about each other migrates a lot. But to your point, and I would I would generalize this. It was a uh, there's a line by this poet I like a lot, and I'm Philip Larkin. He says he married her to keep her from getting away. Now she's there all day. (laughs) 
<laughs> and now you can apply that to the, to the opposite gender, but you can apply that to anything you embrace. That's why my happiness comes from having infinite patience for my work. It's a lucky thing to, st- to be able to do the same damn thing every day and still find it stimulating. Because at the subtler levels, and this is what they'll say about marriages, no, they're not always the same. At the subtle levels, there's, in- there's infinite variety. The happily married people will say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they might even mean it. But I mean it about my work. That is, when people ask me what's new, it's just more of the same, only more so. I do the same damn thing every day. It never feels like it because every day I'm working new ideas, generating new ideas. But from the outside, it looks it, my routine is <laughs> quite reliable. I'm not paying attention to that part. I'm paying attention to the subtleties that happen within it. Interesting. Interesting. All right. I guess we'll leave it at that because that, yeah. that definitely blows my mind. But <laughs> but one final question, and this might turn yes. into a rabbit hole, might not if you're okay with that. What is your daily routine? Because it seems like you've been able to – you've been doing this for 65 years. You've lived in completely different worlds, completely different lives, consulted for the U.S. military along with you know <laughs> being completely purposeless from 7th to ninth grade to also being completely workaholic you know, type yeah. in that in that commune. So, but, so what's my day? My day is, uh, it, it's so reliable. I'm, I'm up by seven. I have coffee. Um, I sit at the computer. I do. I usually have woken up with an idea. I'm, I, 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 um, I will usually write it up right away in some short form. I'll spend my day on my projects. So I've got like five or six projects going right now and I'll work on them fluidly. I will take a walk with my research colleague of the last 25 years, this guy, Terrence Deacon, he has a dog. We'll take a research walk. We'll walk at a nearby park, maybe four days a week. I'm here. Otherwise I do podcast interviews. I do the occasional this or that by about seven, six or six thirty or seven. I get stoned. I'm in California. I, I do my VR exercise. I exercise in virtual reality. What's that? Virtual reality, VR, Oculus Quest. No, yeah, VR exercise, though. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's fabulous. In fact, I'm one of the first people in the world to um, have a sports accident from VR. <laughs> I, was doing, I was doing my VR. I was boxing in, the VR, uh, in VR, and I tore a meniscus. Wow. Uh, yeah, so, no, and, I, and just yesterday, I found a great program for high-intensity interval training. So, um, yeah, that's what, I, that, that's what I do. And then after that, I've usually had a bunch of ideas because I'm usually audio. So I don't read books anymore. I listen to books and I listen to everything. And I get through a book a week this way easily. Um, um, so I will, I will either be generating, I will have some ideas after the exercise that I'll write up in the evening stone. And then I spend the evening practicing electric bass guitar. Mm-hmm. We're getting better and better at the kind of exotic techniques that you see bass players playing these days, all that slap variation and all that sort of stuff, while watching fabulous uh, um, uh, limited series, TV series, um, and movies and stuff like that. I will tend to eat mostly in the evening. I'm trying to be in bed by midnight these days. Um, and I also usually take uh, one to three naps during the day. I'm a fabulous napper. I'm also narcoleptic. That means that if I, when I need a nap, I really need a nap. But I just fall down for 10 minutes, uh, wake up drooling, completely refreshed. It's a lucky situation. I've been in academic meetings where I, where I left to go to the bathroom 
not to go to the bathroom, but to lie down on the floor someplace, slept for 10 minutes, woke up drooling, completely refreshed, huh. went back into the meeting, and they thought I went to the bathroom. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm a really good ma- napper. I'm a serious napper. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like you're very efficient, like all the things that you do. First of all, what do you do from like, what? So you just do projects from, obviously, you're walking dogs and talking in between. No, like- th- no. Th- with him, that, that, that's, a, that's a one-hour dog walk. Yeah. where we're working out pieces of the theoretical work we're doing yeah that oh. turns into his writing or my writing or all of that so it's like it's like if you had your absolute favorite professor mm-hmm. in your whole life and you've been jamming with them for 25 years a quarter of a century mm-hmm. and you have this whole language you've you've got you've cultivated and all of these experiences and you're taking a regular walk with them every every few days it's just okay. fabulous i mean this is a harvard neuroscientist you know i'm I cried when I first read his book uh, on the origins of language, not because it was moving, but because I felt like this is way over my head. I'm out of my league. And now we jam. And now you jam. Because he's that kind of professor. He's never pulled rank on me. If you're interested in the questions he's interested in, he's right there working on them with you. He's a wonderful guy. Yeah, I mean, I think we have we dude, we could talk about so much more. Man, talking about your your work on the origin of yeah, language and species, species and- yeah, uh, origins <laughs> of life, origins of trying. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. I might have to have you on again, but That's fine. I'm around. <laughs> my next deadline is death. So, um, yeah, just have me back if you want. I'm around. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Honestly, Thank you. Yeah, Jerry Sherman, tell people where they can find you. You know, you could, uh, I'm, uh, if you Google the name Jeremy Sherman, you'll find way too much of me. Hmm. Um, but if you also want to find a consolidated place where I list the, the main research questions and just make it accessible, entertaining, all that, it's jeremysherman.com. And if you want to find my podcast, I got three and one of them we were talking about earlier there, but the main one these days I'm uh, pitching is what's up with assholes, advanced mm-hmm. psychoproctology for beginners. It's my book for free. It's just available to anybody. I read the thing. I read it um, carefully and edit well edited. It's a good, good version of it. And yeah, if nobody understands the joke of psychoproctology, look it up. It's, it's pretty hilarious. When I, <laughs> I needed a light name for a serious subject. There's nothing more dangerous in this world than someone who claims to be an expert on who's an asshole. Yeah. It's a very I, serious subject. You need a light name for it. <laughs> psychoproctology. <laughs> what a guy. It was great to have you on. Thanks, thanks, man. You take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Nick Lugo Show with Jeremy Sherman. To support this podcast, please give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to my YouTube channel. And so I'll leave you the quote by the greatest Tony Robbins. People will give up on their goals and dreams to meet their needs. Think about that and, well, take care. Have a good one.